Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone, I'm pleased to say, is Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Mike, always fantastic to catch up with you. Let's just start with that first question. How should investors process the agreement overnight in Washington, D.C.? Uh, well, good morning to all of you. I uh, hope you're uh, doing well in this lockdown. But, you know, look, I think this is, uh, you know, this has been expected, obviously, for the last couple of weeks. We didn't know the exact timing of it or the size. But I think uh, given you know, the state of Washington over the last few years, they got this done pretty quickly. And $2 trillion is a serious number. Uh, Lisa mentioned, you know, with you've included uh, QE, we've got a $6 trillion stimulus of some, you know, some form. You know, our estimates are, like everybody else, we think the second quarter is going to be a bit of a black hole in the economy. Uh, it's about a trillion-dollar hit, maybe a trillion two, trillion three, when all is said and done, assuming there's a recovery in the back half. So you've got about a trillion, trillion two hit to the economy, and you've got a $6 trillion stimulus. I mean, it seems, you know, it seems like that's appropriate, and it seems like that's going to be uh, good enough to uh, kind of put in a low here, which is what we've been sort of calling for. It doesn't mean it's going to not be volatile. It doesn't mean we're not going to retest some of these levels, but... Stocks have discounted a lot of bad news, uh, and we think, uh, you know, as we've been saying for the last few weeks, you should be, you know, averaging in over this period where the news is going to be really scary. You know, I look, Mike Wilson, and good morning to you and uh, to all of Morgan Stanley on lockdown nationwide and indeed worldwide uh, as well. Mike Wilson, so much of this is about the elasticities, the malleabilities of corporations. Can they adjust on the income statement to that $1 trillion hole this quarter? Yeah, that's the right question, Tom. I mean, here's the way I think about it, uh, which is maybe a little bit different than uh, the consensus, which is the, the government, you know, because this is a such a shock. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. Okay, let's and, and John, you said it right. There's a, there's a human toll here. It's not just a statistic. Okay, people are going to be losing their jobs, and some of those jobs aren't going to be coming back for a while. That is what a recession is, and so there is a human cost. There's a economic cost, and that's typically, you know, what happens is when you have a when you have a situation, the government does step in with easier monetary policy and stimulus, and I think in that case. Uh, the government is on the ball. Now, when we when we think about it as equity strategists and investors, you know, we try to you know, we try to be objective about what's actually going on. And here's the way I think about it: so companies are basically we're going to go through a full employment cycle in a month. Meaning, typically, it takes about two years for us to see an unemployment you know rate go up three or four hundred basis points, which is likely what's going to happen over the next thirty days. Okay, now that's really scary and bad, but at the same time, what it really means is that you know costs you know, costs are going to be coming down. I mean, companies are going to be getting their house in order, so to speak, and that's the bad news. The good news is is that protects margins, it protects the cash flow, and the government is really stepping in here in a way where you could argue they are allowing companies to take those costs off their income statement and put it onto the government's balance sheet. So it, it, it's not going to be seamless. It's not, it's not like there's not going to be damage in that transition, but in many ways, you're, you're transferring the risk of shareholders to the federal government. 
Mike, this sort of supports the sense that you were giving out there a couple of weeks ago that we're starting to get to a place where you feel comfortable buying. And in fact, uh, you're more bullish than you have been in a while on stocks. At the same time, if you look at Target's chief executive officer, he said this today, it's difficult to provide guidance with any precision in this environment. America is largely out of business. There's no playbook and we are writing the script each and every day. How bullish can you be? How much upside can there be at a time of incredible uncertainty and companies laying off workers, the psychological impact of that demand and supply destruction? Well, I mean, it's always a continuum of risk reward, right? So the way we think about it is, you know, it's it's hard to get bullish, you know, when, when all these bad things are happening around you. At the same time, you know, if we're thinking about a you know, an investment horizon of 12 months or longer, which is the way we think about our, our process, then, you know, this is the best risk reward we've seen in quite a while. You know, it, it's ironic. I mean, you know, market, look, markets top on good news and they bottom on bad news. And that's where we are. We're at a period of, you know, really, really bad news. But the stock market has crashed. It's crashed in a way like we've rarely seen, maybe twice in history, 1987 and 1929. Okay, and it's crashing because the economy is crashing. So, you know, you have to put that all into context. And when we step back and we say, okay, we don't think we're going to go into a depression. We don't know that, but we have to have a view. We think this is going to be a really steep recession. There's going to be tremendous policy response on the other side. And that by next year, we'll be recovering to some degree. And that's what goes into our models and our thought process when we think about a 12-month view. So, you know, that's, that's the thought process, that's the math, and, you know, we've done the work, uh, we've pretty presented for people to look at, and we think it, you know, this is, this is where it makes sense. You know, one last comment on this, which I think is important, you know, people don't think about risk-reward much when they invest. Uh, I mean, when I say people, I mean the average person. I think a lot of, you know, uh, strategic, strategic asset allocators do for sure, and, and we do that as one of our jobs here. And if you think about the risk-reward today, people in December felt like the risk-reward was more attractive than it is today. And that just doesn't, I mean, that, the math doesn't compute on that. And this is just a reminder that price matters, right? Price matters and the upside and price matters on the downside. That is the final arbiter of when you should be committing capital or removing capital from investments. It's strangely counterintuitive, but it's something we keep going back to on this program, Mike, that risk appetite seems to be positively correlated with the direction of price. Risk appetite goes up as prices are rising, it goes down as prices are going lower. The drawdown we have seen has gone through several phases over the last one month alone. The more recent phase has been a really ugly one, the liquidation phase, the sell everything phase. Can you identify some points, Mike, which kind of signal to you at the moment that we're working our way through that, we're working our way out of that ugly phase? Yeah, um, I would say in credit uh, is one area where, uh, I mean, that's, to me, the, you know, the bigger issue over the last three months for markets uh, this, you know, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but the bigger issue for markets was the oil price collapse than it was the virus, because that's when the credit markets really came unglued. And the credit markets, you know, are incredi- critically important for the economy and how kind of markets function overall. So they became completely dislocated over the last month, and that's when the Fed really got active, as they should. And they now have, you know, in- intervened in the funding markets in particular. Uh, they've got that under control. Uh, and then, of course, they injected capital directly into the credit markets on Monday, and that you know allowed investment-grade credit to uh, start to heal. So the credit you know liquidation looks like you know that that could continue in the lowest quality credits, but that's really important. So I think we've seen you know people basically selling what they can sell. The other thing I would argue, you know, there was a period of about a week or two where it didn't matter what it was, everything was for sale: gold, right? Uh, you know, high-quality bonds, 
uh, low-quality stocks. I mean, everything was being sold to raise money, and so that liquidation phase was quite clear. What I would remind listeners of is that we had the reverse situation last fall. So when everybody, you know, when the Fed came back in and did QE4, right, we had basically systematic strategies and, you know, risk seekers basically putting on too much leverage. So these things work both directions. And I would, I would continue to go back and argue that the fourth quarter rally really should not have happened to the magnitude that it does. So it cuts both ways. Liquidity can work both ways. And in many respects, this, you know, liquidation phase we're having is happening uh, because people got too levered in yeah. the fourth quarter on the premise that, you know, nothing bad was ever going to happen again. Mike, always great to get your thoughts. Send my best to the team, won't you? And my best to you and yours as well. Mike Wilson there of Morgan Stanley, the chief U.S. equity strategist. Now, let's do this uh, right now. Let us bring in our esteemed guest. He, of course, uh, uh, served his India uh, as their central bank governor and, of course, is at the University of Chicago. But that barely describes the social contribution of Raghun Rajan. His book, Fault Lines, was definitive 12 years ago in a financial crisis. And now the third pillar was my book of the year last year. The third pillar is a primal scream for a return of community. Professor, thank you so much at this historic moment for being with us. Where is the community known as America? Uh, it's, uh, it's struggling. I mean, like every other country in the world, uh, to find the resources to deal with this uh, totally unexpected an unanticipated disease uh, uh, pandemic. Um, I think we will emerge from this stronger. Uh, I think, uh, you know, people are talking about the isolation that this uh, uh, pandemic creates, but it also creates a sense of togetherness. Uh, the package that was put together, uh, I guess the word cares is in it. It's a way of telling people everywhere in the country that you belong in one big hole and uh, that uh, that big uh, community, the nation, cares about you. And, of course, uh, what would be nice is if that went down to the local level and we got far more local action once this uh, pandemic is, is defeated. Professor, in an ideal world, we'd have the fiscal support package before we get the shutdown to make sure that some of these companies don't start folding, don't start laying off people before they have a chance to get the money. And that's the story in the United States. The sequencing is just a little bit messy. In your India, with 1.3 billion people locked down for three weeks, what are they doing on the fiscal side, on the monetary policy side, to try and cushion what will be a massive blow to the economy? It's worse. I mean, uh, governments simply haven't come to terms with what is happening. I think in India we've got the lockdown first, and now they're contemplating what they will do on the fiscal side. It's also harder. How do you get money to a worker who has no formal bank account? Uh, And uh, what we are seeing right now is the first phase uh, where people are trying to come to terms with not going to work. There are lots of poor households that have absolutely no income, no savings, and uh, they also aren't necessarily better off by being locked down at home because home is a slum where everybody sort of really lives on top of each other. So I think India will have to uh, see over the next few days whether this is sensible. It can't go the same way as the West, but it'll also have to work very quickly in getting money directly to households, especially in uh, the urban areas where, uh, you know, uh, the lockdown is going to be far more uh, problematic. And also uh, on small and medium-sized 
serious problems which are already hurting because of previous the previous demonetization which reduced informality as well as the rollout of a goods and services tax which put great strains on small businesses but now we have the third blow which is coronavirus and i don't think many small and medium enterprises are prepared to handle it Professor, you raise a really excellent point and something I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on. Behind every single data point we receive in the next month will be real economic pain and real psychological pain as well. You've brought up the issue of the unbanked, the individuals in society that don't have a bank account, that won't be able to cash that cheque in the same way others will, especially in the developed world. What can you do in a country like India, in an emerging market where so many of society still do not have bank accounts? Well, uh, you you will have to find some way to get money to them, and uh, this is where you might have to use community resources. Of course, bearing in mind that getting a bunch of people together is dangerous at these times, but uh, perhaps funnel money through the post office. Uh, you will have to accept a fair amount of leakage, money going to people who don't actually deserve to get that money because they've manipulated the system. But that is the price you have to pay to keep uh, people from starvation at this point. So I, I, I mean, India has many people banked. Uh, that was one of the achievements over the last few years. But there are still some unbanked people. And uh, the way to do that might be through community institutions. Professor, India and a lot of the developing world have really relied on fast growth for their entire ecosystem. I'm just looking right now at the uh, the growth in the GDP of India over the past few years, 8%, 8.3%, 7%, now coming out of ING, saying that India's economy is poised to shrink next quarter, uh, and the full-year expansion is supposed to be perhaps uh, significantly lower than it has been in a long time. How much does that challenge the financial structure right now of India and its just incredible economic engine in the longer term? Well, I I think it's a challenge for all uh, developing countries which don't have the kind of resources that industrial countries have. Uh, Remember that industrial countries are putting enormous amounts of wealth uh, to work in cushioning the blows from this this crisis. Uh, Emerging markets and developing countries don't have that spare cushion. And uh, especially when you're running already a large fiscal deficit, your debt to GDP is at levels which markets already start worrying about and uh, your inflation is not zero so the um, printing press can't start up as we see with the uh, central banks in industrial countries so EMs in developing countries have to keep in mind that they have to maintain some sense of fiscal and monetary responsibility even while dealing with this uh, unprecedented crisis and that means that um, you know, they, many of them are at this point facing capital outflows. So you ha- you can't cut interest rates to zero. Uh, you have to maintain interest, rate, maintain interest rates at a reasonable level. You can't blow out your fiscal deficit. You have to be very careful about where you apply resources. And, of course, you really hope that you have the medical resources to cope because your medical resources are a fraction of the ones in industrial countries. And everybody at this point is looking for those resources. Ventilators are a premium across the world. So what I think at this point emerging markets and developing countries are looking for is certainly trying to make the best of their own situation, but also more global cooperation.
And, and Professor, I mean, this is such an important issue for the entire world because the developing nations have been the engine of growth for years. And I'm wondering what this means, extrapolate out into what the scenario is given India's precarious situation and frankly that of all developing nations right now. Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, for, for the next month and a half, countries will have to try and get ahead of the of the virus and this is where india's lockdown comes in and it's an attempt to prevent the surge that's happening in a variety of other countries and uh, to prepare their medical re- uh, resources uh, for the eventual rise in cases so this is something that every developing country now understands it has to do but of course it would help if uh, there were more resources available especially for the poorest countries in africa uh, what we know from this virus is there's no point eliminating it in the West or in uh, East Asia if it comes back from some other part of the world where it's not controlled. To some extent, we can't have an open world again until we elim- eliminate this, this virus everywhere. Professor Rajan, we appreciate your time this morning. I'm going to have to leave it there. The secret sauce for Lisa Bramow, it's John Farrell and I, Paul Sweeney, Francine Lacroix is we lean over the desk and we actually read the research. This is always problematic with Carl Weinberg of High Frequency Economics because he has the audacity, Lisa, to write an international piece, a United States piece, and a China piece. I read every word of them on Sunday. And Carl Weinberg, what stunned me was after a mere 32 years of doing this, you decided you couldn't make a forecast. What does that feel like? Uh, it feels like uh, sailing on the ocean without a sail or a rudder. You know, we are in uncharted territory as far as the economy is concerned. A uh, great example of that is tomorrow's number on initial claims for unemployment. Absolutely no idea how that number is going to print, except it's going to be big. It's probably going to be a record. <clears throat> but more than that, more detailed than that, no precedent to move on. And that's a really important number because we're coming up on the employment report uh, in another 10 days or so, and, and that's another number we don't know anything about. We really do not know the true state of any major economy in the world right now. The shock of this is the shock, as Alan Ruskin of Deutsche Bank says, of depth and duration. Is Carl Weinberg more concerned about the depth or the duration of what we're living Yes, I'm concerned about both the depth and the duration, and it's not a laughing matter. I apologize for laughing at it. All right, the, the, the shock itself, the lockdown, is unprecedented. The yeah. implications of it, we have no <clears throat> historical precedent to gauge it against them that I can think of. Maybe you know, maybe you've spoken to someone who has a precedent, but I don't. And of course, the driving factor here, the driver, is the disease, the virus, and nobody really has a handle on the medicine or the science of that to tell us how long this is going to last. So uh, we are very much along for the ride right now and um, uh, trying our best just to keep up with the news. We're looking forward to some, we were looking forward to some survey data from March, but the surveys we're seeing seem to have been taken too early in the month to be able to give us a good bead on what's happening. So, for instance, markets PMIs yesterday, which are flawed indicators anyhow, but if you just say that even they couldn't use a big move like this, they showed a decline in manufacturing activities for the month of March. In February, you expect that 
if February had blipped up, the levels of the indices tell us that manufacturing in Europe and in Japan and the United States, everywhere, was down in March from February, but no worse than it was last fall and last summer, if you look at the levels. And that's just ridiculous. Well, so, Carl... Um, no, I, I mean, I want to break in and, and get a sense from you. You know, you're talking about how it's unprecedented and how we just don't have a sense of of how long, how deep, but it's it's it seems like it's really bad. We know the virus will eventually be stopped, whether it's by a vaccine or whether it's just by herd immunity after everybody gets it. This does have an end point. We don't know when it is. And the question is, how quickly can people get their jobs back? Can the economy get back up to steam? Is there a precedent with the job market destruction and then recreation and how long or short of a time that could take? Well, uh, I can't really think of a, of a good one to tell you the truth. I mean, September 11th, you want to think about the Japanese uh, tsunami in 2011. I mean, there are all kinds of things out there that are similar, but nothing on such a global scale. The really big anomaly, say, is not only the, du- the duration. If you told me the date when this was all going to stop, I'd be happy to know it. But what I don't know is what's going to break in between, okay? If you shut the economy down for a month, or a week, or three months, or whatever it turns out to be, some firms are going to fail. And are they going to be big or small firms? Are they going to be systemically important? Are there going to be financial system irregularities? Are there going to be banks that fail? Uh, Is there going to be markets that fail? Uh, We don't know what breaks. And that's really going to determine the question of whether there'll be jobs for people when this all ends. Tom, you know, I've been thinking and talking a lot about this with people. How will the world look after this is over? Are you still going to go to the Irish pub downstairs from you? Of course you will. Will you still come to the one up by near me? By near me? Yeah, of course you will. You know, but mm-hmm. I do wonder about how things are going to change permanently when right. it comes to office well, space, when it comes to just the landscape of what people need right. or desire. Dr. Weinberg, then along that line, one final question. Carl Weinberg, what does business investment do? I mean, it's going to take quarters to get that inherent confidence back, isn't it? Absolutely, Tom. I just want to go back to Lisa's comment just now. Tom would like to go back to that Irish pub downstairs if it were open. And that's really the question. Will the Irish pub reopen after this? Right. Or will the enterprise go bankrupt? That's the key to the future. And well, I don't know the answer to it. I just saw it on Twitter. Somebody saying Department of Labor just issuing some documents to help out businesses moments ago. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. And we value immensely your research pieces. The Weinberg Global Look, about 10 pages long, and his wonderful uh, U.S. work as well with John Sylvia helping out. Uh, there and of course the view of China from high frequency uh, economics it is a labor economy it is an economy of jobless claims tomorrow some estimating one million one and a half million is the Bloomberg survey two million even three million maybe not in one week but spread out over 14 days 21 days. These are numbers, folks, that no one has ever perceived. Academics, think about this. Pavlina Chernova is at Bard. She's professor of economics. And far more importantly, an important book coming out, The Case for a Job Guarantee. That's a controversial title, professor, as well. With this legislation, are we any closer to a job guarantee? Good morning, Tom and Paul. No, we are not uh, close to a job guarantee. And I am looking at the provisions, and I actually don't see anything specific, specifically targeted to the labor market. 
we have some emergency measures that I think are trying to stop the hemorrhage and you know the yeah. good measures. But uh, we need we need to keep a laser sharp focus on jobs. Right. We have we have atomized our labor economy over X number of years. I've said this on the show, folks. On Labor Day, I always try to read some labor chapter in a book. I read Paul Samuelson, 1948, from another time and place on labor in America. I, I mean, it's gone, isn't it, Pavlina? I mean, there really is no labor representation. Am I right on that? This is true. There's no strong labor representation, and uh, we are putting labor on the back burner. And we will not come out of this uh, uh, moment without some bold, big programs to restore jobs and incomes. And we just can't think in the conventional ways. You know, we're looking at potentially quarter to unemployment rates uh, of 30 percent if we listen to uh, the St. Louis Fed. That is greater than what we had seen in the Great Depression. And there is only one solution to a problem like this, and that is direct employment, bold, big public investment. So, Pavlina, looking at the the fiscal stimulus plan just emerging from Congress, what are some of the key highlights for you as it relates to getting people back to work? What I am seeing is a lot of focus on income support, which is the right thing to do at this moment, uh, some strengthening of unemployment insurance and this one-time payment, which probably will go for rent and food for the month of April, but that is it. And unemployment insurance is not a uh, pro-job creation policy. It's a policy that stops sort of the floor from you know, falling from underneath us. And so what we need is to start thinking about how to return jobs uh, back uh, once unemployment develops, it has this terrible, terrible way of self-perpetuating because um, we tried this last time during the 2008 great financial crisis. We strengthened unemployment insurance. We could have done better, but we, it took us 10 years to bring unemployment down to its historic lows. So we cannot afford to wait this long or potentially longer unless we do some direct job creation. So, Professor, a lot of uh, Wall Street economists are scrambling to come out with GDP forecasts, and I think, you know, many of them kind of, I think, incorporate kind of a V-shaped recovery, a sharp, sharp decline in 2Q GDP, followed by pretty, you know, solid bounce back in Qs 3 and 4. How do you view how this might unfold? Yeah, Paul, I think you're absolutely correct. All of these provisions right now are designed to patch us over for a couple of months. So whether these are loan guarantees, you know, various, all of the various policies are for the short term under the <clears throat> assumption that people will happily return back oh. to work. But that, that ship has sailed in some sense because even if, if a lot of businesses reopen, we already have plenty of right. loss and loss of income, which will kind of ripple through the economy. And folks, even if they get a loan to pass them over for a couple of months, if the customers are not returning in big numbers, right. we will see the problems down the line. Uh, Professor, one final question. It's too short a time to talk to you. We'd love to have you on again. Is the basic idea of an individualistic, almost Lockean America, and as somebody said uh, brilliantly in an essay this week, this is a Hobbesian crisis. We've gone back to natural man and natural law and all that of another time and place. How do we recapture the collectivism of labor? I don't see any evidence the mood is out there. No, you're... 
You may be right, but I fear that the economic pain uh, is ahead of us, and we will be once again engaged in this conversation. What did we do wrong? Could we have prepared better? Can we stabilize the foundations of the economy? And the foundations of the labor market, working people, we need good jobs and good incomes. And uh, I hope that we start this conversation as yeah. soon as possible so we don't have to go through yet another very, very protracted downturn. Pavlina Chernova, thank you so much, with Bard uh, today with a, a really out-of-consensus view there for so many on Global Wall Street. Right now, a gentleman who is expert at labor economics, and he has the ultimate accolade of a polarized Washington. He writes for the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, of course, has been iconic in his public support of Vice President Biden, the last go around. Uh, and uh, Jared Bernstein joins us right now. He is a liberal who conservatives are compelled to read at each and every moment. Jared, wonderful to have you uh, with us today. Can you explain the reticence of Senate Republicans to get this bill done? I mean, it seems like the compromise is supposed to benefit 1,100 pages of America, $2 trillion in all. Explain Mm -hmm. the Washington reticence to assist their electorate. Yeah, I think I can do that. Uh, It took way too long for members of Congress to recognize urgency that was clear to any of us who've been watching markets and other economic indicators. And unfortunately, one of the things that happens in this kind of situation is that you have the Christmas tree problem. Members of Congress see a, a big bill coming down the pike that has to pass, and they think they have leverage to put stuff on it that doesn't belong there. I will say, though, that for this Congress, it looks like they did ultimately act uh, pretty quickly, and uh, the deal should be uh, perhaps done later today. The Senate and the White House are in agreement. Now it's all about the House. And what I'm hearing on the ground is that the House is uh, going to join on pretty quickly. So, Jared, it's interesting here. Do you think this deal, $2 trillion, obviously a huge number, really jumps out at people is it enough, or do you think this is just the first in a series of fiscal stimulus plans that will be needed to keep this economy you know, from going too yeah. far south? Uh, it is the largest stimulus uh, I believe we've ever heard of. It's 10% of GDP, uh, and, it's, uh, and yes, we will definitely need more trips to the well. Uh, this uh, is actually the third trip. <laughs> There's been two other uh, stimulus bills so far. The first one was a, a narrow one directed at a uh, health uh, crisis. The second one was a small stimulus. Uh, this is a big stimulus, but we're going to need more trips to the well. There are at least two things left out of this bill. First of all, it has nothing on state fiscal relief. That turns out to be critically important. It was important last time in a shallower downturn. <clears throat> and, and secondly, uh, the... Uh, uh, the bill um, has just one-time payments to households. Uh, those are going to be very useful, but I think we'll have to do more than one round of that. So, Jared, there's, you know, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball, your GDP crystal ball. How do you <laughs> think GDP is going to play out over the next several quarters? I think Wall Street, many on Wall Street are looking for a V-type. Some are looking for a U-type of recovery, and some are just flat out saying this is an L-type uh, recovery, and we'll get back to you whether you know this thing turns up. Well, here's how I would explain that. You think, think of the V or the U or the L as having two parts, one part down and one part either up or sideways. The down part, economists can explain to you, and I will, 
The up part, epidemiologists can explain to you, and they will, uh, or at least they will when they have the data. The down part is baked in the cake, and it's going to be double digits, and it's probably happening as we speak. That is double, a double-digit GDP decline with a negative handle. Uh, and then the up part, whether it's a V, is a matter of when containment occurs. Uh, no question there will be lots of pent-up demand. You know, air, airplane trips and conferences, many will be rescheduled. Uh, people will go on vacations and back to restaurants. So I, I think Trump is correct when he says there's pent-up demand. The question is, how intact will the economy be on the other side of this such that it can absorb and reflect that demand? I mean, Jared, uh, this is all well and great, but I want you to explain. I want you to go all Dean Baker on me right now. And so (laughs) there's a whole left feeling that, you know, life will go on. And there's a conservative ethos, which many of our listeners and viewers share. Uh, There's this conservative ethos. Oh, no, we're giving it away. Isn't anything we spent now paid back in ongoing GDP over quarters and indeed years? I mean, we're going to get the money back eventually, right? Yes, and I think the uh, the notion that you can somehow pivot from where we are now to a better economy by Easter is completely nonsense. I mean, as I've said, there, the, the second quarter is a deep recession baked in the cake. That's not just me. That's everybody. And uh, the idea that you can um, punt on containment efforts only means a, uh, a, a much larger uh, economic problem down the road. So, yeah, I think we're going to have to just uh, do what the, uh, what the health experts are telling us and recognize and, and keep that. The key <clears throat> to your question, Tom, is making sure that we have an economy that can bounce back at the other side of this. That's why the 800 plus billion in this in this bill we're talking about to help preserve small and large businesses right. is very important. <clears throat> but I remember, this is really important, folks. In AEA in 2009, the American Economic Association, Olivier Blanchard, the giant of French economics, working with the IMF, working out of MIT, Professor Blanchard got up, uh, Jared, and he put up a chart and he said, you know, there's been a real crash, but here's the run rate to get back. And someday we'll get back. I mean, those laws are still in place. If we spend 10% of GDP now and 7% of GDP in eight weeks or eight months, whatever, we're going to get it back down the road, right? Listen, Tom. uh, Yes, right. I totally agree with you. But here's the thing you have to appreciate. I'm sure you do. You think, and I think, in medium and long term, sounds like you're thinking long term. Politicians think in very, very short term. Uh, So when you're talking about uh, uh, Trump, who feels like his, and I think correctly feels like his electoral prospects are very much damaged by what's going on, uh, he's thinking in terms of weeks, not seven, eight years to make up an output gap that, yes, eventually will make up. So, Jared, I guess the one of the next issues is as we parse through what's coming out of Congress right now in terms of the $2 trillion fiscal stimulus plan, what is Cong- what does Congress need to focus on next, do you think, from a, from a stimulus perspective? Well, that's a great question. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, state fiscal relief is essential, and it's not in this bill. American states have to balance their budgets, and given the, the demands on their unemployment insurance system, uh, they're going to be facing it big time. Uh, secondly, there will need to be another trip to the well to help support households who are losing paychecks week by week. And also... It's important to note that in this bill, 
It is true that low-income households are eligible for these checks, but many of them don't file federal tax returns just because their income isn't high enough, and that means that they won't uh, get those checks unless they file. That's the way the thing is set up. So they're going to need to uh, they're going to need to file in order to get their checks. Jared Bernstein, thank you so much for the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Can't say enough about his work. Really compelling reading always from Professor Bernstein. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 